Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we are on verse 5. I know we're going kind of slow, one verse a week, but this material in 2 Corinthians here is so, um, how would you say it? It's just so gospel centric and so essential to understanding the Paul and the New Testament conception of the Word of God, the preached Word, the Gospel, and so on. And today I'm going to talk about the idea of preaching. And I brought some material from some scholarly sources that I think you'd be surprised at how right on these guys are. And what what is this Russo, the word for preaching, to, to preach, Russo to preach, uh, the Greek word, and what's the significance of it. So in, so I, I think we've got some good stuff today to look at. But before we do, let's begin with prayer. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you've shown us through Christ that we might even be allowed to participate in the, in the gospel and in the body of Christ and the family of God. To just be a part of your family is the greatest blessing and honor that anyone could ever have. And Lord, we thank you for the dear brothers and sisters around the world who join us on the Internet. And we pray, pray for them also that they would know uh, the joy of being a part of the family of God and the joy of fellowship. And Lord, bless them. And may your word bring powerful changes in their lives as you conform them to the image of Christ as you do with us by your grace. And we pray for wisdom and understanding today and uh, help us to um, open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Welcome. If you're a visitor, we thank God for you and welcome you. Here we are in uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. It says here, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So this verse right here, remember this verse, this disproves something that you probably have heard before. You've probably heard it said that the missionary is the message. Well, this verse says that that's a lie. The message is Jesus Christ. The message isn't us. All right? And so, uh, if you ever want to think of a sermon that would be the most worthless sermon you could ever preach, it would be ourselves. Okay? Uh, I read that in a, in a commentary once. The most miserable sermon topic anybody ever talk of, talk, thought of was preaching themselves. Uh, what is it like to preach ourselves? Well, to preach ourselves would be say, we, we are the really great Christians. We're, we're superior. We're, we're, uh, isn't God lucky? We're in His family. And that's not, that's just absolutely wrong. We should always, um, a sign of the fully understanding the gospel, a sign that the truth of God weighs heavily upon us, would be that we feel that it's an unbelievable privilege to even participate. 
and that God would allow us into his kingdom, us sinners, is a, is a proof that God is a gracious and loving God. I, uh, I'm working on an article. I, gotta, I really have to write it next week. I've ruminated on it for long enough on, on the topic of pietism, what it is, and why I don't believe in it. And it's such a difficult topic because it's so amorphous. That means without form. And there's a thousand different types of pietism. And so it took me a while to even come up with a definition, but let me run the definition by you. Pietism is some man-made process that will lead to an experience that will result in some higher order Christianity. Okay. There's the idea, pietism is based on the idea that there's extraordinary Christians and ordinary Christians. And that there's some sort of a secret or experience or process besides the means of grace that, that will put you into the higher category. And I was just talking about this in thinking about how I'm going to write the article and looking over. It's almost, who do I quote? Almost every popular writer uh, since Finney in America has been a pietist. I can quote everybody. The, 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 the really extraordinary thing is find somebody who's not a pietist. Uh, for example, pietist, Watchman Nee. So I mentioned, there was a guy that, wrote, that sent me an email, and I mentioned that Nee was a pietist. He said, well, what's wrong with Nee? He's my favorite. I said, Nee claimed that all kinds of things. He claimed to have revelations from God that uh, explained how demons attack Christians and processes that he invented to, to deliver us from demons. There's all kinds of problems. Well, he, I know because I used to believe that, and it set me back ten years. Yes. How about the Pope's statements this week? Oh, about the narrow, yeah, you have to go to the, yeah, the only real Christians are the Roman Catholics. Well, that's a good point. Roman Catholicism has always been pietist and nothing else. They have elite, they have orders and monks and uh, works of super irrigation and processes to make people more holy than others. And they have saints and non-saints, okay? Somebody called me who said that they were talking to their relatives and they were shocked to find out that all Christians are saints. They were Catholics. That you're either a saint or you ain't. <laughs> okay. And uh, they hadn't heard that. And so, so what happened? Where did it come from in Protestantism? Well, somewhere maybe 100, 150 years after the Reformation, uh, there was a Lutheran guy who invented pietism for, for Protestants is supposedly in re, in, as a response to dead orthodoxy. In other words, he thought the church had gone dead and they, were just, they had their orthodoxy and they had their creeds and they had their confessions and it was dead. So he created pietism so to create more alive Christians rather than just dead orthodoxy. But I'll, I'll deal with that in my article too. Orthodoxy isn't dead. In other words, believing the truth doesn't kill people. What kills people is unbelief. I remember talking to a charismatic one time who said, uh, who was criticizing me, this was back in the 80s, for going into studying doctrine. He said, why do you spend all your time studying doctrine? Uh, it's going to kill you. You will be dead spiritually if you believe doctrine. I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because I used to be a Lutheran and we had the truth, we had the creeds, and we said them every Sunday. And I was dead. And I said, so 
are you telling me that believing that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinful life, died for sins, and was raised on the third day, and bodily ascended into heaven, believing that killed you spiritually? Well, no, I didn't really believe it. I said, well, then it wasn't the orthodoxy that killed you, it was your unbelief. Okay? But thinking that the orthodoxy killed them, then they, they want to have an experience rather than belief in the truth. And the experience creates a higher order Christian. Now, here's what I told the guy who was a follower of Watchman. He's a wonderful guy. He loves the truth. And I, I'm not putting him down at all. Uh, uh, he, was just, he was willing to listen. But it's hard when somebody first tells you that your favorite author is, is not right on. Okay? Here's what I said to him. There are no extraordinary Christians. But being an ordinary Christian is really an extraordinary thing. Just let that sink in. Because it's, it's, if we think that just being saved is really not much of a deal, it's not important, there's got to be something better than this, then we don't understand We don't understand the glories of grace. We don't understand how great it is to be a... I mean, to be the lowest bondservant, the lowest possible person in the kingdom, to be the least in the kingdom. In fact, I'm not going to get that far in my sermon. I'm preaching on John the Baptist. But Jesus said, the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And he was the greatest prophet of uh, of the old covenant. But the Messianic kingdom is that great. So, if you are just a Christian, just an ordinary Christian, and all you have going for you is that Jesus washed away your sins by his blood, that is the most extraordinary, unbelievable thing. And somebody is going to come along and offer you something better, that something better will always harm you. Because there is nothing better than being saved by grace, sanctified. So, why do I attach what I just said to we don't preach ourselves? Because pietism ultimately is we preach ourselves. Come and see the experience we had. Come and see the higher order Christianity that we created. See, look at us. We're the extraordinary Christians. That's pietism. But if, if, we, if we really think, look at us, we're sinners saved by grace, then really you shouldn't look at us anyhow. Look at Christ. Keep pointing people to Christ. So we do not preach ourselves. So if Paul, the great apostle, wouldn't preach himself, certainly we wouldn't want to. But Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, I mentioned last week that at the very end, remember I went through that whole litany of all, of all the different things about Christ that are true, that when you see a, a, a statement like Christ Jesus is Lord, it's, a, it's, it's just pregnant with meaning. There's just, it means all of the things that we know about Christ are included in that. The, the whole doctrine of Christ that Paul preached. And then, so Paul doesn't preach Paul, he preaches Jesus Christ, and, but Paul is a bondservant. So the Christian um, is, is Christ's slave, and what we have to do, like Paul, has been assigned by Christ, and the duty that God has given us is to preach Christ and to serve one another, to serve God in his in the body of Christ, humbly by whatever means, whatever gift we might have. Uh, by by the way, another uh, thing that I'll probably reference in my article that would be a disproving Pietism is Paul's teaching about differing gifts 
in 1 Corinthians 12. Mm -hmm. Because even when there are differences between Christians, as in what giftings they have, if you read 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 1 12, Paul is making sure that we never, ever create a schism by assuming somebody's better than somebody else. And he says, our, our, if, if I'm trying to do this from memory, the, our unseemly members, we, uh, this is probably King James, our unseemly members, we bestow more, bestow more abundant seemliness in order that there might be no schism in the body. So someone might have a very uh, visible gift, like, say, the preacher who's, who's in the pulpit, and someone else may have a gift that's done in secret, serving somewhere. And according to Paul, we should give more honor to the one with the lesser gift, seemingly. Because there should never be anybody considered lesser in the body of Christ. And that's in 1 Corinthians 12. So if there was some elite status Christian, better than everybody else, Paul didn't know about it. And he didn't consider himself that. Yes. I guess, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is... um you know, when we're out uh, evangelizing, some of the guys have a tendency to just want to share their testimony, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you're not sharing the gospel along with your testimony, the danger is you're trying to call someone to an experience. Like, you should have that same experience that I had. But if the gospel isn't shared along with it, they're not going to understand the terms. That's a good point. So just the experience isn't the end of the story. Yeah, that's a good point. They, for, one th- for one thing, as, as you know, Robert, we need to tell people about the person of Jesus Christ. Never can we assume that they know when we say Jesus what that means. There's not enough... There's not enough they, they, uh, I think the average person thinks Jesus was the founder of a world religion. And they also think the same of Buddha and... Muhammad, right? And so we haven't distinguished our doctrine of Christ from just any religion if we don't tell people exactly who Jesus is. Now, this, um, uh, Paul here explains his gospel as Jesus is Lord, but elsewhere, uh, Robert, as long as you already have the mic, could you look up 1 Corinthians one twenty three? And then... Oh, now that you're here, <laughs> Denise, <laughs> look up 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15. And see, there's a lot of synonymous phrases in the Bible. And when we try to parse them up and say, well, no, this means this and this means this and this means that, sometimes we're missing the point. Look for synonymous parallelisms. Well, so when Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, and then later he says, I'm not, I, I preach the cross, that doesn't mean he has two different Gospels. The cross is shorthand for the whole personal work of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord is shorthand for the whole personal work of Christ. And Jesus Christ come in the flesh, 1 John 4, is shorthand for the whole personal work of Christ. It's a, it's a figure of speech called a metonymy, a part used to designate the whole. So never, uh, when you're thinking about these phrases that we find, keep in mind the whole content of the gospel of Christ. Okay, well, first one is 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Um, I'm going to start in verse 22. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek for wisdom, or Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah. So notice, even there you see a synonymous parallelism. It says, first of all, we preach Christ crucified. That's not a different message than Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a part of it. It's part of the whole story. But then later he says, but Christ, the power of God. Still talking about the same topic. Well, there he just says Christ. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the, in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except um, Crispus and Gaius. Least anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yeah, so and he's saying that because Paul wants to avoid the idea that he's the message. It's Christ, not Paul. He does, I didn't preach ourselves. So when they start saying, well, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paul, and they start personality cults, then they're taking their focus off of Christ crucified. Uh, Robert, uh, back here. Uh, Belt, did you have something? Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, so uh, one form of pietism that's being used by a lot of charismatic leaders or even Baptists or even Calvinists would be that, uh, well, uh, to avoid the personality cult or to avoid baptizing somebody and then having it appear that they baptized them, they would have somebody else do it. In other words, an extreme form of piety would be not to baptize somebody like you just said right here in the Bible uh, at the expense of, of somebody that should be baptized. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? Uh, so, so we try to prove our piety by not baptizing people? Ex- you exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. It is a tricky one, isn't it? Uh, there, there's, there's so many different ways you can prove your piety. And I think the, the best antidote is to don't worry about whether you're pious or not. Just try to serve God by His grace. And if anybody thinks we're pious, what, what good is that? That's like Jesus is warned in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, so you do your praying on the street corner so that somebody thinks you're pious. Well, okay, that's your reward. Somebody thinks you're pious. <laughs> Got that going for me. <laughs> it doesn't do any good. Okay, ourselves as bond service. Now, what Paul is doing by preaching, let's look at this word preach. The word in the Greek is keruso, and it's a proclamation. And I brought some scholarly material to just to show you the full-orbed understanding of this preaching and how God uses it. Now, this is Charles Hodge. Uh, 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 um, Charles Hodge, a great scholar from the 19th century, who's, I love his systematic theology, but here's what he says. The great end of Paul's now, uh, preaching, therefore, was to bring men to receive and acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and as the Supreme Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. This is the only proper end of preaching. It is the only way by which men can be made either virtuous or religious. It is the only way in which either the true interests of society or of salvation of souls can be secured. To make the end of preaching, now listen to this, to make the end of preaching the inculcation of virtue, to render men honest, sober, benevolent, and faithful, 
is part and parcel of the wisdom of the world that is foolishness to God. Now, he goes on, it is an attempt to raise fruit without trees. When a man is brought to recognize Jesus as Lord and to love and worship him as such, then he becomes like Christ. What more can the moralist want? Now, Hodge was preaching in the 19th century, which was a century of societies to fix America. The moralist century. There were thousands of societies to get rid of every known problem, and they were post-millennialists in the 19th century, and people like Finney even claimed that they could create the millennium in America by working harder. They were going to rid America of every vice, and so Charles Hodge is rebuking them, saying, preach Christ. Preach Christ. Only, only Christ could rid a person of vices. To just try to be a more virtuous person through religion is of no value. He said it's like trying to raise fruit without trees. Now, I want to talk about this word, keruso, and the noun form, the thing preached, kerygma. Keruso, kerygma. And I want to show you, some people think that scholarship is sort of a dry thing that's going to lead to, quote, dead orthodoxy. Now, I want to show you from a theological dictionary of the New Testament how certain scholars have a profound understanding of the truth of the gospel. And this is just an amazing thing. Normally, I'm not going to cite something this long, but I made an executive decision that it was worth it. And I didn't even ask Dick. (laughs) This is quoting about, just from a theological dictionary on the word Caruso. When we say that the main concern of the New Testament is with the act of proclamation, this does not mean that the content is subsidiary. Just because the action has a significance, namely that what is proclaimed is actualized, uh, regard must be had to the content. The content is not determined, of course, by the situation of those who hear or read, nor is it dependent on the view of the preacher or on religious questions. It is fixed in advance. Okay, so preaching has a powerful effect, but the content is already determined. That's not our decision. That's what Luther said. The the truth isn't mine, so I can't change it. The gospel's the gospel. Okay, continuing. At at the heart of the New Testament kerygma, message preached, stands the lordship of God. Preaching is not a lecture on the nature of God's kingdom. It is proclamation, the declaration of an event. If Jesus came to preach, this means that he was sent to announce the basilea to Theo, kingdom of God, and thereby therewith to bring it. The other uh, items of content mentioned are to be understood in the light of the kingdom of God. The summons to repentance, uh, Matthew 3, 1, Matthew 4, 17, stands in close relationship to the preaching of God's kingdom. The reason and cause of metanoia is not the, uh, that's the repentance, not the badness of man, it's the imminence of the kingdom. The call to repentance is the fact that the kingdom is imminent. And it is, it is to this day. Because when the kingdom comes, Christ is going to bring judgment and throw out of his kingdom all of the bad. And there'll be no longer any opportunity for repentance. So the kingdom of God is hanging over history like a sword, like a threat that is going to break into history through this, through Christ's return. And at that time, judgment falls upon all those who have not repented. So when it says repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, we should realize that as 
imminence of judgment. Now, why that hasn't happened in 2,000 years? Because a, a, a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. He's, he's, and it says in Peter that he's giving time for repentance. But at some point, it'll be too late. Okay, back to our uh, uh, quote. Man must, be, must amend himself because God is coming, because his rule is near. Repentance does not bring in the kingdom. It creates the possibility of participation in it. Is that a something? It doesn't bring the kingdom, but it, it creates the possibility of participation in it. As the herald goes before the chariot of the king and announces the approach of the ruler, so the preacher hastens through the world and cries, Make ready, the, the kingdom is already near. It is no contradiction that the disciples too proclaim the imminence of God's rule and preach repentance. Mark 6.12 The message of the kingdom is always a preaching of repentance, and all true preaching of repentance speaks of the kingdom of God. Repentance is preached ice which means into the release of sins. I talked about that in Luke, Luke 24, 47. Into the release of sins. The word for forgiveness in the New Testament is the word for release. And Jesus came in to preach release to the captives. So we're captive of sin, and God is going to shine his light into our dungeon of dark bondage and sin, and the shackles fall off, and the doors are sprung open, and we arise and go forth. I'm quoting a hymn. <laughs> Repentance is into the release of sins. In the kingdom, there is remission of sins. The word proclaimed is a divine word, and as such is an effective force. Listen to this. It is an effective force which creates what it proclaims. Hence, preaching is no mere impartation of facts. It's an event. What is proclaimed takes place. Forgiveness of sins is always judgment, which calls the sinner sinful. But in this judgment, forgiveness of sins is granted to believers. The message of the apostles, which has the judge of the quick and the dead as his content, proclaims with the prophets that all who believe on him shall receive remission of sins. Acts 10.42 Judgment and grace are contained in the same word. The proclamation of the message of salvation of all separation and division. To some it is deliverance. To others, judgment. To some the Christ who preaches the scandalon and moria. That is uh, offense and foolishness. The moria, like that's moronic. Okay? Uh, to others, he is the dunamis theu, the power of God, the sophia theu, wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.23. Intrinsic to the kingdom is the kingdom. <coughs> One cannot speak of the kingdom without mentioning the king, Jesus as Lord. Through preaching, Jesus uh, is proclaimed as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Whether one speaks of the crucified or risen Lord, the reference is always to the total Christ, who has become the Lord by death and resurrection, and who is proclaimed as such. Exactly what I was saying last week. It's the whole doctrine of Christ. The incarnate and exalted Christ cannot be separated. One does not preach the myth of a dying and rising God, nor a timeless idea, but a once-for-all factual event, the life of Jesus, his historical manifestation, but the proclamation of Jesus more than in historical instruction concerning the words and acts of Jesus... Stories about Jesus, however edifying, are themselves empty. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If they are not understood in the light of faith in the risen Lord, they are simply stories of things that happened in the past and are more or less valueless for the present. 
uh, let me give you an example. I totally agree with this. I'm, I'm quoting this to show you that scholarship isn't dead. I mean, this is a full-orbed understanding of the kerygma, the, the preaching of Christ. I got yesterday, let me give you an example. Stories of Jesus might be edifying, but they have no saving value apart from the resurrection and atonement. Yesterday, um, Ladies Home Journal came. And being how Diane wasn't home, she's out in Iowa, I grabbed it. No, no, I don't read that. Uh, it grabbed my eye. The Ladies Home Journal on the front cover said, Rick Warren, the be happy attitude. Have a be happy attitude. Rick Warren. Oh, so how are we going to be happy today? Let's see how we're going to be happy. So I, I, I found the article in there, and, and, and it was about we have too many things. We have too much clutter. We, we spend too much time accumulating things, and life isn't about accumulating things. Okay, fine. And then and so he goes on about how to get rid of things and start having... Think about eternity. And then he quotes Jesus, uh, something Jesus said, and then that was the end of it. Then he referred people to the purpose-driven life. But this, this would be... What, but see, that's not preaching. That's not preaching. That's not the gospel. Because plenty of people are willing to take Jesus as a good teacher... And if Jesus said life is not about things, well then, okay, I'll believe that part of it. But believing that life is not about things isn't going to save anybody. Where's the death, burial, and resurrection? Where's the judgment? This, see, this uh, theological journal has it absolutely right. Theological uh, dictionary has it absolutely right. Rick Warren has given moralist view. Make, be a better person. Right? Yes, uh, then I'll, I'll finish this here. So, the kerygma, the message of Christ, Russo, preaching Christ, has to contain all of these key things, and it should be center in every, in, in every preacher's uh, sermon. Yes. So, uh, so, a pietist would take a, uh, the approach where if you could improve the person... You're, you're going to have uh, a closeness, a more closeness uh, toward God, and then if everybody would do the same thing, then corporately uh, you would improve society. So, couldn't you call Rick Warren a pietist? Yeah, and he is. I, I called him that in my article. Uh, in, uh, I called him a deeper life pietist. And, and it's funny, it's, it's frustrating when you try to research and you find your own stuff. <laughs> It didn't do me any good. I, I literally, I, I was, I, I, I put in the phrase "deeper life, deeper life pietist" in Google, and the first thing that came up was my article on Rick Warren. <laughs> All right, I already know what I think. I want to know what somebody else says. <laughs> so, deeper life pietist. Now, um, let's go back to our kerygma. But this is so essential. This is the thing that is gutting. The church of the power of God is a failure to truly preach Christ. And again, I'll recommend to you one of the finest articles I've read in years in Modern Reformation by Michael Horton, like two issues back, Christless Christianity. He's talking about this same thing, Christless Christianity. Fabulous, fabulous article. And it's just just mind-blowing how good that article was. And same idea. We can have sort of a loose idea about Jesus and try to improve people's lives. There's, no, there's nothing to it. Now back to the 
theological uh, dictionary of the New Testament. The reality of the resurrection constitutes the fullness of the early Christian kerygma. This is a fact which cannot be apprehended like other historical events. It has to be continually proclaimed afresh. It is not a human dogma which we are to teach others. It is salvation history which must be preached. And the preaching of salvation history is in itself event of salvation. What is at work in this word is not just the content of what is proclaimed. It is God himself. So, no, let me, I totally believe that. In fact, the previous issue of Modern Reformation, there was an article about the preached word by Horton that was just almost as good as the one on Christ as Christianity. Now, what this is saying is that when, the, when anyone, it, it isn't the preacher, it isn't how eloquent, it isn't how many illustrations, it isn't how... Uh, Loud, you turn up the sound system. It isn't how demonstrative. It isn't how emotional. It's none of those things. It is Christ crucified, preached, is the power of God. And God is at work in those words because they are God's message that is in a salvation event for those who believe. And God uses the message preached. To save. That's what we read in Corinthians. And Paul didn't care if it was a scandal, scandalon, and he didn't care if it was foolishness, moria. It was still the power of God to those who believe. And he was willing to be ridiculed and run out of town, but he kept preaching Christ. He didn't come up with a better explanation that he could get people to accept. Okay, so uh, here we go on. What does that work? In this word, is not just the content, it's God himself. The message does not lose its significance. And it must be proclaimed again and again, not just to the world, but to the community. 2 Timothy 4.2. Now again, I totally agree with this. The gospel should be preached to Christians in the church. Now people say, well, why would you ever do that? Well, because God told us to. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Why? Because... We, if we're tired of hearing about Christ, I don't think we're going to like heaven. <laughs> okay, um, it's a, it's a powerful thing for Christians to hear the truth too. All right, it is the it is the dunamis theu power of God. One Corinthians one twenty four. The preaching of the New Testament will not brook any admixture. Uh, Galatians 5.11, its radicalism causes offense and repulsion and brings persecution and affliction on the preachers. That was from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament under the entry, K. Russo, for preaching. Let's look up our verses. Dick, 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then Joanne, Acts 3, uh, 12 and 13. And Alice, Acts 8, 9 and 10. In uh, Troy, Acts 14, 11 through 15. In Mali, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 5. Lois, uh, wait a second. This one is a whole bunch of verses. I'm going to have us all turn to it. Okay, so we'll stop at 1 Peter 2, 5, 2 through 5. And then I'm going to turn to the 1 Corinthians one. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Okay, we studied that one earlier. Yeah, 
It was an aroma either of life or death, depending on how people respond to the preached word. The word either can, either saves us or condemns us, depending on whether we believe it or reject it. Uh, Acts 3, 12 and 13. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Wow. Did you get that? Could you hear that? You weren't loud enough. Well, you had it close enough, but you weren't loud enough. <laughs> you got to shout into the mic. But we were talking about pietism. What did Peter say there? There was a miracle, and, and, and he says, Why are you gazing at us as if our piety made him better? The answer was, it didn't. It isn't us. It isn't we're any better than anybody else. This was done through Jesus Christ by the God of Abraham. <laughs> okay? So Peter didn't think the message was Peter. He thought of the message was Jesus Christ. And then Acts 8, 9, and 10. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. So Simon Magus, the magician, was making himself out to be the great power of God. Peter claimed that there was no power or piety in Peter to heal anybody. Now, later, the apostles came, laid hands on the people that that had been believed, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and it doesn't say exactly what happened, but something significant, perhaps speaking in tongues. It doesn't say in the text. And Simon turns out to not be a true convert, because it said that he, he was with the rest of them and believed, but he really didn't. He was, a, he was like a Judas. And Simon, when he saw this, offered to pay Peter, or pay for the uh, money, pay money for this power. And Peter says, I perceive that your heart is not right with God. You have neither part or parcel in this. You and your money can perish together. And so therefore, Simon preached himself and is condemned. And Peter says, this was Christ, not me. Uh, Yes. This is told about about Simon Magus. It's told about in the Truth Wars, which is based on Jude. This book is in the library. (laughs) And it's uh, one of the many apostasies that that, uh, the author, John MacArthur, talks about. And it's like um, it's taking the power out of God, the power away from the gospel. Yeah, that's right. John MacArthur talks about Simon Magus in his book, The Truth War. Uh, Bill. If Simon Magus offered money to buy the gifts that, the, that he witnessed the apostles would have, and the, and the apostles said, well, no, you can't buy this, and you can take your money and go to hell. But yet we have evangelists. Yeah, that's what he said in the Greek, by the way. So. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, you're right. That's what the Greek says, but they usually don't translate it that way. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so so then uh, 
correspondingly, we have televangelists who say, if you will give uh, to this ministry and get a hundredfold return, then by default, aren't these guys actually sorcerers like Simon the Magus? I, <laughs> yeah, well, I, they, they're trying to sell miracles. I once got uh, in the mail, or no, some, uh, one of my, somebody I knew said it to me before I wrote CIC, but it was in the 80s. But it was a little packet of water that came out of the fountain in Tulsa where uh, Oral Roberts is. Okay, and you send money in, and they'd send you a little packet of water uh, that supposedly came out of his fountain, and you could anoint your billfold with it, or you know. <laughs> but it was the funny thing about the thing. I, I I don't know. I don't have it anymore. But I remember what it said on there: caution, do not drink. <laughs> and I thought I thought their their doctrine is as toxic as their water is. <laughs> okay, Acts fourteen eleven to fifteen. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in their Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down on us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Wow. So they, so they were going to ascribe the power to, God, to Paul, and so he, they were so upset, that Jew, this is a Jewish custom, that to show your anguish, you tear your garment. So they tore their garments and said, we're a man of same, as the same nature as you are, and we've been preaching that you should turn from these vain things to serve the living God. They wouldn't accept the accolades of these guys who wanted to make them objects of worship. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3. No, 2 through, no, two through 5, excuse me. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, so there's teaching to shepherds that they shouldn't lord it over the flock, shouldn't exalt themselves shouldn't consider themselves superior, and so on. And then Jesus said in Matthew 20, starting with verse 25, Matthew 20, starting with verse 25, and Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so the missionary is not the message. That's just a stupid lie. I don't know who ever thought of that. And, and the idea that if you go to some other culture and you're just a good person, that all of a sudden they're going to want to convert. 
God doesn't save people through good people. He saves people through sinners saved by grace who preach the gospel. And if Christ is not proclaimed, they will not be converted. Because God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. We don't know who will believe, but we do know that the true preaching of the cross will call forth those who will believe out of the mass of perdition, as it's called in theology. That we know. Yes? Just a, uh, a thought on your uh, missionary is the message thing. Is that perhaps out of Marshall McLuhan's advertising thing back 20, 30, 40 years ago, the Canadian? He said the media is the message. That oh, really? Deal. I, I don't know who invented it. I've heard it so many different times. Yeah, that's a poss- it's, a, it's an analogy, anyhow, of the same idea. Well, let me quote the Emergent Church, if I can get it right. Remember that seminar, uh, Eric? Uh, we did a Northwestern over there. Yeah. And, and uh, here, here's what they said. It talks about preaching. It says, when you prepare your sermon, don't think, what is my point, but what is my image? Yeah, that's from a book called uh, Age for Abductive, the Language of the Emergent Church. They, so you're not supposed to make a point. You're supposed to create an image, according to the Emerging Church. Now, what good is an image without a point? Then you're preaching yourself, right? And it says we don't preach ourselves with Jesus Christ. Yes, Bill. So juxtapose that against the scripture that says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." Yeah. Follow, follow the apostle. Yeah. Or is it following his message? Why the message. You... Yeah. As much as I'm following Christ. If as Paul wasn't following Christ, he wouldn't be worth following. As much as he's following Christ. Yeah. So then there's there's a, a caveat, a condition. For following a man, if he says, follow me, right? Yeah, he has to be, we have to objectively see whether he's proclaiming the truth of Christ before we believe him. But they just say, don't project a message, project an image. Now listen, uh, here's uh, Barnett, another scholar, talking about this verse. Implicit in this brief statement is the conviction that the crucified Christ has been exalted through the resurrection as the heavenly Lord. God's suffering servant, the agent of atonement, is now the ruler of the world. Personal conviction is expressed by open confession that Jesus is Lord. <coughs> Issues in the salvation of God, Romans 10.9. The implication here is that lordship equates with deity. Lord regularly translates Yahweh in the LXX, Septuagint. And there are numerous New Testament references to Jesus as Lord, that echo Old Testament passages that refer to Yahweh. So there, there's, an, there's an implicit doctrine of the deity of Christ in the confession, Jesus is Lord. That's what's being said. Now, I think I had one more quote. we got a few minutes here. Oh, I had Hodge. Oh, Garland. Oh, I left it in my office. No, Garland. I had it out on my desk yesterday, and I was working with it, and I forgot to throw it back in my backpack. Uh, remind me next week, I'll have it, and I'll go back to the quote from Garland, because he he's always oh, so good, so good. Don't, uh, as I was showing earlier, don't neglect scholarship. One of the really, 
uh, unfortunate things that have come into contemporary evangelicalism is what I call an anti-scholastic bias. In other words, there's the idea that if you study or go to seminary or learn the languages or do a lot of scholarly work on the text, that you'll dry up spiritually. And, and that, uh, I think that anti-scholastic bias is uh, very unfortunate, very uh, uh, damaging, because what it does is that it keeps everyone ignorant and just living off of experiences. All right? And they say, well, in fact, I even got an email from somebody who says, well, what do you say to this? I think your problem is that you study too much. And, and if you spent your time praying instead of studying, then you'd have more of an experience and you'd see things differently. Now, why is this an either-or, for one thing? All right? Well, if you study, you can't pray, and if you pray, you can't study. No, I don't believe that. And the other one is, if you don't understand the words of the Bible, you can pray forever and you won't know a thing. Prayer isn't... You know what I wrote him back? The Bible is God speaking to us. Prayer is us speaking to God. Okay? So if I want to know what God says, I go to the Bible. I don't go to prayer. Yes. I heard a, a preacher once, he misquoted this verse about how the, the letter brings death and the spirit brings life in reference to a doctor not being any good and, yes. and you know, the experience being the thing. Yeah, we studied that here some weeks ago. That's a very good point. That's a misuse of it. Uh, I wrote it many years ago, wrote about that. Uh, they quote this verse, the, the, the letter kills but the spirit brings life. And I said, yes, yeah, so then why did Paul write a letter to them? I mean, if, 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 he, if, he, if, he, if he meant reading the Bible will kill you, well, then he was killing them by writing them a letter. And they pull it out of context, because if you look at the whole context, he's talking about the, the tablets in the Old Covenant and the veil over Moses' face and the fact that they were unable to see the glory because of their hard hearts. So the thing that was killing them was their hardness and unbelief, not the fact that the, the Ten Commandments were there. Sin kills you, not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments just reveals that you're a sinner. All right, so that's, yeah, good one, Troy. I've heard that misused, too. See, um, that's part of that anti-scholastic bias. Don't learn anything. Don't study. It'll probably harm you. Uh, yes, Sam. I'll tell you what will harm you. Uh, well, let me quote, uh, uh, Craig, let me quote your uncle. All right, uncle. Ray was a character, but he certainly had some quotable uh, things he had to say. Ray LeVang was my teacher. He says, I'm quite sure God doesn't need our intelligence, but I'm also sure he needs our ignorance a lot less. <laughs> because uh, Dr. LeVang was running into students with this anti-scholastic bias. Why do we have to study? God, the Holy Spirit will use us without studying. He says, well, yeah, God doesn't need your brain, but he definitely doesn't need your ignorance. Okay, Sam. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking that when... When, uh, if you don't study the Bible, if you don't uh, adhere to the word, the true word, and, and, and learn or get it interpreted for you by your leaders as best you can, uh, then that opens up all sorts of doors for the pietist people, for the pietist ones to lead you anywhere they want, through anything they want, by emergent church, by robes and collars, and, and even you know, calling something that it is not. Because if you don't know the word, they can call it that, and you know the difference. Yeah. So you can be led all sorts of directions if you don't know the word and don't study it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
is, you know, really this whole type of thinking, the anti-scholastic bias, the experience orientation, it's based on the idea that God really won't honor his work. And it, and it is in an unbelief in regards to the means of grace. In other words, it says in Peter, as newborn babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then in Hebrews, it says that you are uh, they're rebuked for being willing to study more. And, it's, and it said that's why they don't have discernment. Um, it's because they were unwilling to study. Now, what this is, is the idea that if I do what God says, I to study, because it says to do so, study is show, show thyself approved, and I pray, and I avail myself of, of, of fellowship under the Lord's table and the things He's provided for the church, that God won't use that. And, and that what I really need is some sort of a higher order experience. And I've, and I've had that argument for so long. Well, you need an experience. Well, who has a, uh, who has a uh, monopoly on experiences? Everybody is experiencing life day by day by day. And I experience God's work in my life day by day by day. I'm not robbed of the experience of walking with God because I don't go to some meeting uh, with some guy like Benny Hinn. Okay? Um, but the ordinary means of grace are a very extraordinary thing when God is working in somebody's life. And we see the hand of God graciously at work. And, and so the Lord isn't withholding His presence or withholding His gracious work or withholding miracles or withholding whatever He's going to do in our lives because we didn't go somewhere to try to seek out an experience. Okay, Charlotte. Well, you stole my thunder because I thought of the verse that is the key verse for the Awanas, which is from Second Timothy, I believe. Um, study thyself, study, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's study; it's a commandment. Yeah, to we're study. told to. Yeah. yeah, we're told to. And so, thank, thank you, Coralie. Um, that's absolutely right. And then. Uh, it's amazing the, the power of the preached word. And that, that's another thing. You know, when it says preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, that same, that's right after the verse you quoted, it's a powerful thing. You just, you just preach the word and then listen to the testimonies that God's working graciously. People are witnessing. People are bringing their relatives and they're being converted. People are going out to, on the streets and preaching the gospel. That all just comes as a result of the word. N- nothing more, not not the personality of anybody or nothing or anything like that. So, yes, Troy. When you preach the word, people are going to experience God. <laughs> when they just, you know, when they're going for experiences, they're experiencing emotions in themselves. That's a good point. Because how do you know the experiences from God? Well, only because it's a, in the response to the preached word. That's the true word. You know, you can have all kind of experience. I mean, I've known people who are so experience-oriented, they could... One guy went to Star Wars and came back and reported how God was there doing some, you know... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think so. All right, it's, uh, we are... Uh, I'm going to preach in Luke one more time here today and then next week back into Exodus. Uh, so... Uh, 10.30, the church will be upstairs. We'll have time to fellowship, take the chairs down, and enjoy sharing 
with one another.